cool. That is live for me. Yay! I'm Alexis. I'm Mallory. And this is Newtcast. <laughs> this is where we dance and you can't see that. So if you do a behind the scenes for Newtcast, you should put that in. Yeah, we definitely should. Just like a conglomeration of our dances. <laughs> So welcome, welcome, welcome. We are so excited to be here again. It feels like it's been forever since we had our last episode. Yeah, we recorded early for the last one, so we waited a long time now yeah. to get to this one. We have definitely a really good topic at hand, and we have a special guest, Mariah. So Mariah, Hi. why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, I'm Mariah. I am a Gryffindor in Hogwarts and a Pukwudgie in Ilvermorning. I yeah. uh, grew up in Colorado and now I am in California. My favorite character is a tie between Fred and George and also sometimes Ginny, depending on how I'm feeling. Uh, I met Mallory and Alexis, you guys, through the uh, BYU nerd community and various things there on Twitter and Facebook, mostly just social media groups about being nerds in Provo. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's where we are. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, quick note, if you do like the show, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes to help people find us. That would be really helpful. Mariah actually was one of our first people to leave a review. So thank you, Mariah. Bless you. <laughs> All right, today's topic, we are going to be speaking on canon. Ooh. What does it mean? How do we define it? There's a lot of debate in the fandom especially right now with all the new things coming out so we're in a really delve hardcore to that but first in the cursed child news this week um this doesn't really count as big news but there have been some more official and leaked pictures from the play and i've finally seen a picture of delphi now so i feel better that i kind of have a vague idea of what she looked like in the play and it was nothing like what i was picturing she was a lot older uh-huh. than i was picturing what were you picturing i i guess i was kind of just picturing like a vila tonks okay yeah so it was very different than i was expecting but i was glad to see that come up something that i saw on hypeable is that wb released a statement about harry potter and the cursed child um, they said that it is a stage play, and they have no plans for there to be a film. So yes. whether or not we can trust that uh, remains to be seen. I highly doubt we can trust anything anyone says these <laughs> days. But um, at least it gives me hope that they're not planning right now the Cursed Child movie adaptation. That just sounds awful to me. So I'm really grateful for that, actually. If they're going to do a film, I'm hoping that it's going to be like they film stage production and right. have it released that way. That would be really nice, especially for people who can't afford yeah. to go. That would be ideal. Yeah, I but... agree. And then Pottermore news. So those ebooks we talked about have been released. I don't know if you guys have read them. I didn't even know until I looked at their show notes. <laughs> I forgot about it, too. I felt so bad. I'm like, who am I? So I only bought the two that were like stories from Hogwarts because those are the ones that are supposed to have new content. I haven't come across any new content yet. Okay. What about you, Mariah? Have you read them yet? Nope. I also forgot they were coming out. So we didn't announce that at all. They made such a big deal out of it when they first announced it. And then when it was released, I didn't see anything anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I would love to know what's going on in the brains of everyone who's in charge of marketing Potter right? stuff these days. Right? <laughs> like, oh what my gosh. is happening? Just getting weirder and weirder by the minute, especially Fantastic Beast marketing. Social media, uh-huh. too. Just yeah. baffles me. 
like do they have one person doing it all i kind of doubt it because it doesn't seem consistent disjointed yeah but you know what i feel like if there was a ton of marketing and a ton of backing behind it on social media and everything else i feel like people would be like like getting that feeling of oh they just want money from it right so the fact that they're being kind of hush hush about it just goes to show that this isn't all about money Mm -hmm. is but really they're just we have content we have nowhere to put it anywhere because Pottermore sucks. I mean, it's different. <laughs> whoops. <laughs> um, whoops. Oh, and the, also, since our last episode, I think the Ilvermorny crest have been redone, if you haven't seen that. Yes. Because previously, somebody on Reddit found very close likenesses to the previous renditions of those. I can totally yeah, see. Same. Like, they are... Absolutely. The artist went to Google search and was like, what the freak is a puck wedgie? And just like, <laughs> typed it in and was like, okay, I can do that. I mean, it was yeah. straight up like they put some contact paper over it and traced it. Yeah. So I'm really glad that they changed it. Mm-hmm. They look a lot now, cooler now. Yeah. More colorful now, right? Aren't they? Yeah. For Fantastic Beasts, I've been actually really terrible about keeping up these past weeks because school started. Uh, sorry. <laughs> but there have been new cover art for the film art book and the script book that's coming out that look really, really cool. Um, it's made by the same company that made the textbooks and the films, Mina Lima. Mm-hmm. They're really good. And I think the covers are really pretty. And there's actually a creature on one of them that I won't mention that looks really cool. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's okay. Me and my spoiler avoidance it's so hard <laughs> to talk about anything. We'll have our own episodes about this. It'll be totally fun. <laughs> you can just go to town. Okay, so in some miscellaneous news, a lot of you may have seen this, but on September 1st, which obviously is the day that kids are boarding the Hogwarts Express to go to Hogwarts, um, J.K. Rowling tweeted it out about it being the supposedly 19 years later date in which Albus Severus is going to Hogwarts, but then people jumped on her for it saying, no, that's not right, and then she took it back and corrected herself saying, no, actually, it's next year. So now there's this big debate going on about whether it actually is really? 2016 and 2017. Oh my gosh. So, I did the math. <laughs> Alrighty. Since it's kind of relevant to our topic today, I thought it was worth mentioning. Absolutely. Um, the Battle of Hogwarts takes place in May of 1998. So, 19 years after that specific date would be May of 2017. But the problem is that's May and not September when the Hogwarts Express leaves. So, the question is, is it actually 19 years and four months or oh. 18 years and four months? I believe that it's 19 years and four months, partly because the math round part down. of me, yeah, you round down. And also <laughs> because that's what Joe corrected herself to saying, so it makes more sense. But that kind of re-brings up the point, which Hypable mentioned in an article about this. If what the author says goes as far as what's canon and what's not, what does that mean when the author contradicts herself? I think she just made a mistake and she went back and fixed it. That's true, but like she has if been contradictory. If there's can. one media in which they say one thing and one media in which they say another thing, you know, some people would be inclined to believe one over the other, and that's where the debate can get messy. In legal type stuff, which I was doing at work today, <laughs> it's uh, whatever happened later. So if she, you know, said one thing but then said a different thing later, it's whatever she said last counts and sort of like amends or usurps the old thing that was. Said. Okay. Interesting. Which regulation trumps the other regulation? It's a little canonish. Yeah. Yeah. Ish. I like that. Oh, it's good. Good research. 
All right, so to officially segue, this is The Suitcase, or our main segment about canon. Before we actually like get into talking about this, I do kind of want to make some distinctions because I have been talking about this with a few people just to kind of gather some ideas. And I think it's important to make the distinction between considering something canon, caring about it or not caring about it, or liking it and not liking it. Um, Something that I've heard very frequently from other people is they'll say something along the lines of, I think canon is whatever their definition is, because when she releases something in this format, then I don't care about it, or I don't like it, and we're not interested in it. And really what we're trying to get at, it's different from liking it or not caring about it. Yeah. To put in the disclaimer that we're... (laughs) Not actually seeking to, like, establish an official definition (laughs) of what the Harry Potter canon consists of. (laughs) We're just kind of trying to get every side of the debate that we've seen out there and discussion of this going. Um, Especially because it's such a huge debate in this particular fandom right now with all of the things that are coming out that a lot of people are less than enthusiastic about. For sure. For me, I first went to the definition of canon. And Google and Wikipedia had two different definitions that I liked a lot. The first definition in Google was, it's a collection or list of sacred books accepted as genuine. Um, Of course, referring to the fact that it is a scriptural term, um, a religious term. And then um, Wikipedia went on to say that it's also the material accepted as officially part of the story in an individual universe of that story. It's an individual universe, alternate universes. (laughs) And then I just started thinking, oh, goodness gracious. (laughs) Curse Child can't all be canon, only the, no, I don't even know, like, it's just, oh boy, it just started, okay, I don't know, I think it's really interesting to go back to the original definition, and Mariah, you had a lot of thoughts about that, would you like to start us off? Yeah, absolutely, so my understanding of canon actually began with the Harry Potter fandom and people discussing what canon was, I think I was a 12-year-old who started spouting off to my mom about canon stuff, and she was like, where did you learn about that, we haven't sent you to theology school. So that was, <laughs> I was uh, bored at work one day and I was thinking about The Cursed Child, which I had read the night before. And uh, so I was considering, like Alexis had tweeted about uh, canon and does it count? Basically, you know, the question that's been on everyone's mind is does this new stuff count as canon? And so I was thinking about how a lot of times people in religions will have the same debate of does this count as canon? I thought that maybe we could uh, inform our understanding of Harry Potter canon and what it means and like how people decide what is canon by looking at you know the original canon, which, as I understand, was a Christian term, but maybe it was Jewish first. I don't know. I didn't right. go to theology school. <laughs> so one of the things that I'm familiar with is the idea of an open canon versus a closed canon in uh, my religion. We have what's called an open canon, which means that basically you can add on to the scriptures, like Bible type stuff at any time. And the idea is that God keeps talking to people like he did in the Bible. And uh, that's similar to what we have with Harry Potter now in the author of the canon texts, essentially, is still kicking and uh, still definitely talking to everybody. And I also did some research into canon, and uh, the original canon came up when people in Christian churches were attempting to decide what the 
canon what they were all going to preach as official was going to be because there had apparently been some disagreement about you know what was true what wasn't part of the religion what was and so everyone well not everyone but a bunch of the important people get together and make an attempt at creating one thing that they're all going to stick with and i interpret this mostly as an attempt to unify the people who belong to the church, and in terms of fandom, you could basically call the Christian church the Jesus fandom. I think that comparison is actually pretty useful for talking about this, because even though the actual content of these two canons, so to speak, are very different, the kind of idea that like there's an effort to unify everyone on agreeing what actually counts, but in both cases, it didn't, it hasn't worked. Yes. Like, I mean, there are so many different versions of the Bible and so many Christian branches that don't mm-hmm. agree on everything that counts as true. And or even if they say the same words, they disagree about the meaning. Absolutely. And so yeah. one thing I just thought of is that the idea of canon is different from truth. I understand truth to be like an absolute thing that no one gets to decide or not. But canon is something somewhat arbitrary that we create and we sort of try to align it with truth, but they aren't the same thing. The earliest fandoms that I could sort of collect off of a little bit of research, I came up with a few. Shakespeare was one of them. Of course, you've always heard of the Shakespeare canon, right, as being all of his plays. And then you have hundreds and hundreds of adaptations and interpretations, which... I feel like fan art of today gets a lot of bad rap just because it's like, you know, well, why don't you just make your own art? You're just, you know, it's just the same sort of thing as fan fiction, which is really sad to me. I could go into a whole other episode (laughs) just on this topic, but please do. We'll keep that that in mind. So I feel like like the original fan art are all of these adaptations and spinoffs, like the play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, for example. And no one seems to mind that, that people are adding to it or, you know, twisting it their own ways. Of course, then again, Shakespeare is dead and has no say in it. And it's so far removed from us that it almost feels it's not even an argument Mm -hmm. about whether or not we should or should not be doing that. Because I feel like it just deepens our understanding of our world. There's also something to said about recognizing the difference between an adaptation or a redoing or retelling of a play in this instant or a story Mm -hmm. versus adding on to it where, you know, there's plenty of film and play and whatever adaptations of Shakespeare in plays, but then there are also things like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, which are not retellings, they're additions. And that's kind of the difference between adding on to the canon versus just a new adaptation, which people don't generally consider canon. They just see, oh, that's like a new take on it, a new interpretation. Another great fandom, one of the original fandoms was Sherlock Holmes, of course, which is adaptations galore. And as far as I can tell, it was the first fandom to use the word canon in a non-scriptural sense. Hmm. So that's something to keep in mind as we, we continue our discussion today. I'm glad that you brought him up because Arthur Conan Doyle was sort of famous for hating his own character and hating when people would want to take him and redo it and Mm -hmm. find out more and everything. So it's kind of nice to talk about that in the sense of how much the author's will has to do with it and also giving us a later on perspective of, you know, he hated going on with Sherlock Holmes, but he did anyway. And after he died, it didn't matter. I mean, they're still going to town with that story. Mm -hmm. So who knows what's going to be happening with Harry Potter 100, 200 years from now. That scares (laughs) me. I have to be alive for it. 
Careful, that's a dark path to go down. <laughs> How do you create a horcrux? <laughs> um, no. Split your pod- podcast into two parts. I can do that. <laughs> and then another one is, of course, Lord of the Rings. You have posthumous editions in Merillion's son, right, who published that. Yeah, he was one of the only people who was allowed to do anything right. with those notes. Right. And it is considered a very closed canon, and they keep mm-hmm. it very locked up as much as they can. And I think, you know, the Hobbit films, of course, took their own route with love interests that no one cares to yeah. think of. But I don't think anyone takes those seriously, so there was never a question of, is this canon? It was just sort of yeah. like, eh. I mean, part of that is just because they weren't as good of films as the first yeah. three films, so... Mm-hmm. People don't take I mean, it as seriously. Lord of the Rings could be useful because there are some instances where the later thing that happened, which I'm thinking of as the Lord of the Rings movies, uh, contradicted the original thing. Uh, I remember they had um, a couple things where Arwen did a lot more fighting than normal. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, I am a huge fan of movie Arwen, who is ready to get on her horse and kick some butt. But Did either of you? I have no idea how, like, the book fans Okay, reacted. yeah, I was just going to ask if either of you read the books before the movies, because I'd be really interested to know what, because, I mean, the Lord of the Ring fandom was huge already before right. the films came out. Oh, it had been around for decades. But um, I'd be interested to know how, like, to what extent they consider those films to be part of the canon, or if they just consider them the way I consider the Harry Potter movies, which are just, you know, different interpretations, but their differences from the book aren't necessarily canon. They're just, hey, this is a different look at these stories. I don't don't think I would consider the movies canon, but I'm not really part of the Lord of the Rings fandom. Yeah, I actually, my dad read me the books before I saw the movie, but I was very young and did not understand the books. (laughs) So I was not not part of the fandom. I was far too young for that. But... Mm -hmm. I remember enjoying the films very much, whereas when I was younger, around the same age watching the Harry Potter films, I was upset <laughs> at any any liberties that they took. But it might have been because I was closer to the Harry Potter books than I was to the Lord of the Rings at that time. Yeah, well, at that point, I mean, I was in junior high, so my opinions on canon weren't very nuanced. It was mostly just if the movie came out, it was oh, this was different, and I either liked it or I didn't. Yeah, Exactly, yeah. I had the same experience where I just was too young to really appreciate what an adaptation was and that they couldn't put everything in. So I remember both my sister and I would come home from movie adaptations of our favorite books and be furious because they changed little, little things. Yeah. 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 And now looking back, I'm so much more okay with it. Like I just, Mm -hmm. and maybe it's because I've been studying film, but I'm just like, if the director sees something like the, third movie, for instance, looking back at that is beautiful. And the first time mm-hmm. I watched it, I hated it. I'm like, where are the Marauders? Like, what the heck? Yeah. But now I look back and there's so many, like, visual symbols and different things that it changed the whole direction of the ways the films were going. You know, as mm-hmm. the third movie should, as the third book did, it got darker, it got more real. And some of those were liberties that he took that weren't in the books, but now looking back, I think are good additions. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was first thinking about canon, I realized that like all of these early instances had very different fandom experiences, right? It was before the internet, mm-hmm. especially. And also a lot of it is occurring after the death of the original author. 
we're, we're kind of coming into the, the era of transmedia storytelling, mm-hmm. which has been around for a couple of years, just sort of in the, you know, the lower reaches of the internet, but has become more and more prevalent as franchises discover the profitability of, of just expanding the world, especially in sci-fi and fantasy. And if you don't know, transmedia storytelling is storytelling that's done over several kinds of media. So you have films, you have books, you have maybe an online game, which is happening to a lot of different franchises. Something that was happening before Harry Potter started in that direction were Star Wars and Star Trek, who have a huge history of things. And I just thought it was very interesting. These two were the ones that stood out to me. I'm sure there are other ones, but they're both sci-fi. I feel like this whole question of canon is maybe more prevalent in the sci-fi fantasy realm than it is other genres. I think that's true too, because you're building a world that's different than the one we actually live in more often than not. Right. Whereas other genres tend to be placed in the world we already live in or just a very slightly altered one. So there's not as much that can be done as far as, you know, creating an entire transmedia experience about here's a game where you can go into this world and yeah. Yeah. Mariah, did you, did you say your husband was super into Star Wars? Oh, yes. He is a massive Star Wars nerd. Um, so he had strong opinions about uh, whatever it was that happened when Disney bought the rights to or acquired Star Wars and uh, declared that the what was it? The extended universe novels were no longer canon. Previously, they had been stamped with that canon stamp. And uh, the stamp was revoked to presumably make room for the new movies that are coming out, which he was not happy about. But he also, I was discussing this with him in preparation for this, and his opinion was that, you know, since it's the company that owns Star Wars, they get to do whatever they want. And basically what they say is canon goes, which is interesting and not something I totally agreed with. Yeah. I, I looked a little bit into it and found that they employed one man to be the official keeper of the canon. That's too much oh power God. for one person. That's a <laughs> job. I think it's more like a job where he just like knows everything about the Star Wars universe uh, so that wait. people go to him for consistency. So the job that I've wanted to have for Harry Potter for years. Yes. <laughs> The, like, like fandom like, consultant. <laughs> is this guy anonymous, or do people, like, know who he is? Well, I know his name. Well, his name is on the internet. I actually don't know okay. it. Okay. Because, I don't know. So you can look him up. Like, Star Wars fans and just, like, crazy fans in general can be a little nuts. Like, what if he uncanonizes something and, like, someone puts a hit out on him? Oh, my gosh. That's true. I didn't even think about that. Like, okay. That's scary. So, yeah, that's why I don't want that job for Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it definitely goes to show how tangled that lineage is of movies, of comic books, of novels, and video games, and all the things that Star Wars has been churning out for the last few decades. Especially because they've been doing the transmedia thing for several oh, decades. Since the internet. Mm-hmm. And same with Star Trek. Like, they both, you know, have a very rich history. And before Comic-Con was a thing, before conferences were a thing, I feel like they did, like, mailing lists and things. Like, this yeah. is what I've read in the past And so um, I thought it was really interesting. There's actually something on the Star Trek website that says that plots and characters from tie-in novels, comic books, and video games are excluded from Star Trek canon. These sources Hmm. have been subsequently introduced into the television series. 
Yeah, so it's really interesting because they're just like, these aren't canon, but we're just going to make them anyway, and people enjoy them. And then sometimes they'll pull from those to make them canon later on. So that was a very interesting thing to me, thinking about Harry Potter now that we have so many other variations. Um, But of course, Star Trek started as a television series, so... One of the interesting things to me about transmedia storytelling is that often you end up with more than one author. You'll have, like yes. for Star Wars, the people writing the comic books versus the people making the movies. And we've not really seen that with Harry Potter yet, but it seems like it's moving in that direction. Which is scary. I'm not sure I like yeah. that. It's yeah. not a safe and, place for us to feel Yeah, yeah. we're putting with, it into other people's hands that we're not used Mm -hmm. to. Yeah, in the pre-transmedia fandom type things, you could make it easy to distinguish between canon and not canon by like, you know, did the author say it? But then if you get contradicting authors or like does one author outrank another because they wrote more or they wrote better or everyone likes them more, then it gets confusing. Yeah, and the thing about it that it's funny though, is like I say that I would I would want only J.K. Rowling to, to introduce canon to us, but the idea of her asking Jack Thorne to write Cursed Child, I actually liked it, which is probably like not a normal thing for a Harry Potter fan to say in these trying times. Are um, you saying it? You like it as a Harry Potter fan or as a person who like wishes J.K. Rowling well? Because those aren't always the same thing. This is very true. This is a good question. Um, neither. <laughs> I I like it because I like that she was humble enough in a way to be like, I've never written a play. Mm-hmm. If I had to write a play, it would not have gone over well. Not as well as the production quality, at least. Maybe the story would have been a lot better. It would have been a lot better. But, <laughs> but I feel like the production quality of this was just beyond anything I've ever seen. And it's mm-hmm. because a playwright had the ability to morph the story in ways that he knew the stage could present it so well. So mm-hmm. I feel like maybe she could have been involved more in the story making process. I don't know how, you know, maybe she was, maybe this was her idea. I don't know. But I do like the idea that she was like, I'm not a playwright. And also she was screenwriting, you know, fantastic beasts, which is a huge undertaking in itself. So I don't know. So I have a question. Can we consider the entire performance of Chris Child canon before it's been like, officially documented and recorded because we have like the copy of the script so I'm okay with calling that canon for now until we get to that part of the discussion but I'm not sure if we can call the performance that happens canon because it's not something permanent that's documented like does that make sense yeah Yeah. especially since you know you know that there's things like ad-libs and just every performance Mm -hmm. is probably going to be ever so slightly different my first one, Money Myrtle, fell off of her perch. Yeah. Was she really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she she covered it well, but yeah. <laughs> so that's a different thing than anything else, I'm sure. Also, yeah. a bird, uh, the owl flew out into the audience and didn't come back. <laughs> <laughs> they caught it. He's fine. But yeah, I was there for that. That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> they don't use owls anymore is what I'm saying, so... <laughs> Um, so is that canon? Who knows? <laughs> that owl. We felt so bad. We're just like, that poor owl is like, that was his first stage performance. He probably just got stage fright and now he's fired. Like, <laughs> He'll never work in this business again. Right. <laughs> Honey blew it. 
Um, but something else Star Trek said is um, canon is not something set in stone, which is like very interesting to me. It's like, what is it set in pencil? Like, <laughs> not to be, like, direct. I don't know. Uh-huh. It's just it's like can- the idea of uh, open canon versus closed canon that you find in religion. You're so good at this. <laughs> that's you. why we have her here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Did you have so, something about the Lizzie Bennet Diaries? Uh, I did. So when we were talking about transmedia, I was thinking of the Lizzie Bennet Diaries because that was my first real experience being in a transmedia fandom. Right. And so I am pretty sure there was one uh, team writing all the scripts for the videos and the videos were the main social or main storytelling format but they also had these characters having uh, social media accounts uh, I think Twitter definitely I don't remember if they had others so my impression as a fan at the time when all this was coming out was that um, everything was subject to the team's approval but the videos were uh, subject to more uh, scrutiny before they were published per se and maybe the social media posts, the, the tweets especially, would be something that you sort of shove off to the intern or whatever. And then one thing that I didn't research because I ran out of time, but wanted to look up about Lizzie Bennett Diaries was were those uh, character Twitter accounts like favoriting other people's tweets because that's what you did back then. And so would that like be a canon thing that Lydia Bennett favorited that one tweet that was really popular in 2012 favoriting tweets like you're getting i'm trying to remember because i i mean i was watching these videos and following like the twitter accounts and everything as they were coming out so i'm trying to remember i remember to what extent reply to each other they definitely did that i'm looking up this account right now because i'm curious (laughs) i'm looking up lydia because i think she was the most prolific okay she has 99 likes that seems like they would probably all be in universe. Okay, yeah. Well, I think they like, interacted with people out of universe too. From oh time yeah, to time. yeah. This Stasha. Roberts. Which man? Then we get this into this like whole thing about like how far the diegesis goes and like oh, oh my yeah. gosh. Oh my goodness. Okay, so yeah, they definitely would interact with fan account, like with fans on their accounts. Really cool. Interesting. All right, so now going into Harry Potter. Harry Potter is very unique of all of the things that we've been talking about so far because J.K. Rowling still sort of oversees everything. Like, she's written most things, um, if not had a hand in writing everything. And she's already put, like, the legal measures in place to make sure that other people can't swoop in and Mm -hmm. take their own stuff, either now or after she's dead. The second thing that makes it unique is that she is still alive. So she's still here. And not only is she alive, she's constantly talking to us now which mm-hmm. we mentioned before is sort of a new thing like when she first created twitter it was just pen and paper are my priority some people mm-hmm. would like that to be her priority again i i'd like to argue that it is she's just now enjoying herself more and interacting mm-hmm. more i don't know yeah yeah but it's just a very different dichotomy when she's able to answer questions immediately from fans across the world so but as far as people saying that like they want her to sort of stop releasing things. I have to strongly disagree. And not just because I want more Harry Potter, but because since she has all of this, I don't know, stuff, she's created this world and she has 
literally decades worth yeah. of notes and just little ideas in her head that she, you know, didn't feel like were relevant to the plot or whatever. Mm-hmm. That she released these things now and have it be like officially her writing it and everything other than it being more of a Tolkien scenario where people uh, have access to her notes after she's gone and then they release it in their form, which, you know, is still good, but it's not, I say to her, go, go for it. Like perhaps the worst situation is like Harper Lee where she had to kill Mockingbird. And then, you know, here that was really sad. (laughs) Yeah. That's definitely not something that I would ever want to have happen. And Mm -hmm. I mean, the only like argument that I feel is really valid as a Harry Potter fan for stopping releasing stuff would be just concern for like, generally how Harry Potter is perceived and the prestige that accompanies it. I feel like in literary circles there is more prestige ascribed to uh, books that are just written and then stop and there's nothing after that. And so if as a fan you're really concerned about the prestige that Harry Potter holds in literary circles then that could be a valid reason to want her to stop. And I mean that's not a big concern of mine, but I can see how it gets played into yeah. like how Harry Potter survives the years. Is it going to get taught in schools if it's perceived as being more prestigious? Um, yeah, that's true. So I mostly just said that to provide a opinion different from your guys's, but thanks. Thank you, Mariah. You're welcome. <laughs> that's a really interesting one. Yeah. I can definitely see where they came from with that. Yeah, I guess my concern with her releasing new things isn't so much that she stopped doing it, more that just, like, you know, as long as she continues to put as much care as she can into how it is done. Quality yeah. content. Absolutely. Beast definitely will have that. I don't know. I just have this feeling. It's going to be it's really good. good. Oh, like my expectations are maybe too high for this. Maybe I should just go in with low ones, but it's too late now. So I looked into two of the biggest like wikipedia type resources for harry potter the harry potter lexicon and the harry potter wikia and they have two different ways of determining what is canon and what is not Uh, the lexicon has like a primary secondary and tertiary canon and a non-canon i love uh, this i just want to interject that and say i love this (laughs) system (laughs) it's a good one so they have the primary canon is books one through seven and that's it secondary canon are supplementary books that are like writing by J.K. Rowling and anything from the movies, the games, uh, the theme parks, or the play, which is specifically known to have come from Rowling, in addition to her illustrations. So anything she's written, basically, anything that has her mark on it is secondary canon. Tertiary canon is interviews and tweets, usually the things that are contradictory when she's saying something in an interview. Um, and those tend to be like the more unofficial, yeah, just kind of off the cuff mentioned things, and then it makes a headline out of it, right? Yeah, <laughs> and oh my gosh, I have a whole podcast episode worth of thoughts on that. And then there's the non canon, which is everything else, including movies, games, parks, plays, fan fiction, etc. So they put Cursed Child in non canon except for writings and elements that are J.K. Rowling approved that we know of. Wait, I'm confused. Does Cursed Child fall into secondary or into non-canon? Because it's a play, but it... Yeah. 
I mean, it's got her name on it, so doesn't it That's kind true. of specifically come from Now that I think about it, plays in non-canon could be referring to a very Potter musical. Oh. I don't know. That's a good question. They didn't actually clarify that. That I know of. Oh. And the Wikia has three different tiers. So tier one is J.K. Rowling. Anything to have come from her, including Cursed Child. J.K. Rowling involved, including the films, the Wizarding World theme park, the books that are about the films. And tier three is anything that she's licensed. So other people have done them like video games, wizarding cards, merchandise, and non-canon is defined as fan fiction. And something that's really interesting to me is it almost feels like Star Trek in that um, flipendo, right, came about in Cursed Child, which is originally a video game terminology. It was. I laughed so hard when I saw that. I was like, was that just always in her notes and she gave it to the video game people as like a word to use? Or did they just make it up and then they adopted it? Oh my god. I, I laughed so hard when I heard it in the theater, and I don't think anyone else was laughing. I was just, like, dying, because I'm like, this is not even... All I'm picturing <laughs> is, like, those panels on the wall in the game, around. and like, a blasted truth comes scuttling out or whatever. <laughs> Absolutely, and you have the gnomes making those awful noises. I hate oh those So the thing I was thinking about um, was that some of the arbitrariness that is put in for what level of canon things are going to be ascribed to is uh, sort of arbitrary because it's basically what's published or not. And publishing used to be uh, basically the only way that your story was going to get told. And so storytelling was dependent on publishing. But I feel like with multimedia and the internet, we're moving beyond a dependence on publishing. And so that allows for an expansion or redefining of canon in general for fandoms at large and not just the Harry Potter fandom or the ones that have been around and already have multimedia stuff. I was thinking about how before publishing existed, your stories would be told orally, and so things would absolutely get changed. And so was there this idea of canon before publishing, or is canon something that accompanies publishing in an attempt to get everything standardized? Yeah. That is so interesting. I didn't even consider that pre-canon. I'm so sorry to be hard, like going back to the same thing again, but like religion wise, I believe that's part of what the confusion was because even though, you know, like written stuff did exist when you're looking at these canon debates, printing wasn't ubiquitous and it certainly wasn't accessible to the average congregation or group of religious people. So maybe like the big disputes about canon began because of this mostly oral tradition of what the scripture or stories of this religion were. Yeah. And that almost synchronizes very well with uh, the the idea of the play, right? Because every Mm -hmm. telling is a little different. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Interesting hearing you say like, I feel like it can't be canon until it's been recorded. For me, I felt having been to it, and maybe this is like different because I've been, I don't know. I felt like that is more canon than the script is. Because but, it's the product, like the finished version. Right, it's, it's, it's to be the intended, it, yeah, it's the intended experience, it's the intended way to tell the story. Mm-hmm. And I think as long as it's, I don't know, because like, then you're going to change actors after a few years and, you know, new directors will come yeah. through and 
So, so I feel like we sort of have these conflicting versions of canon that are like the publishing version version, which mm -hmm. is set in stone and like you can't change something once it's been published unless you do a new edition. But right. then you have more of the like self-experienced canon, which would be oral tradition type stuff and actually seeing the play with these actors and that person on sound and moaning Myrtle falling off her stool. Yeah. Huh. I think there is one other version of, I don't know, defining canon that's worth mentioning because even though it's not really, I don't know, necessarily the best or most reliable version, it's probably the most common one, which is cherry picking, mm. which is what a lot of fans tend to do now, especially because this point in the fandom, this fandom and in just fandoms in general, where we're very loose with the word canon. I mean, people use the phrase headcanon all the time. Yeah. And Absolutely. that basically just means like, this is my opinion or how like I, I like to I imagine mean, things, yeah. but mm -hmm. it doesn't actually have anything to do with canon. Yeah. People's version of defining canon for them is they just pick out the parts that they like and disregard the parts they don't. Mm -hmm. And that's not really a way to define canon as far as, like, the actual purpose of having a canon, because right. it doesn't unify anything at all. Exactly. But it's what people tend to do. Yeah. Maybe that just means that canon is taking on another definition and purpose in an age of modern fandom that also involves, like, defining what parts of a story you are okay with and which ones you find objectionable. Yeah, and I mean, I'm no exception to this. I remember when we were talking about Cursed Child and we were getting mad about Cedric, I was talking about how, like, I flat <laughs> I out, like, this. yeah, I don't accept this. I flat out reject it. But I don't know, in that type of use of the vernacular, I was trying to express that I really disliked it. But, mm -hmm. you know, use more precise language. I wouldn't use the word canon in that because in my interpretation of canon, I do accept Cursed Child as canon, and even though I don't like that bit, I'm accepting it as canon, and then I have my own personal opinions about how to get around it. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah, for me, it's like, there's that challenge, but I feel like I can explain it away in a way, you know, like, he was imperious, mm -hmm. Voldemort rewrote the story, because, you know, history goes to the victors. So I have, like, my own head canons, if you will. That, that's such a flimsy word now in this, <laughs> in this dialogue, but... Um, <laughs> I have my own head cannons about what's going on behind the canon that I also, I believe is, is canon because JK Rowling has said it's canon mm -hmm. for me. It's all, you know, her world and who am I to say that's not true. You know, it's something that came from her mind. And I actually recently rewatched the, I don't know if it's 2001 or 2003 documentary about JK Rowling on the BBC. And it was so interesting to go back into like just getting into like the, the famous life she still is adjusting to that because it's still very new for her yeah. and to hear her story of how it happened I noticed like I just did the math for her age I didn't write it down so I don't have anything exact but she spent like nearly a decade with Harry Potter before even attempting to publish the first book yeah. like mm -hmm. she spent years with him and with the plot and with each individual character and you can tell like that reads on every page of Harry Potter mm -hmm. and I feel like she has been there for so long and people got offended when she's like well this is still my story you know because they're like wait no but it belongs to the readers and mm -hmm. I think the interpretation of stories belongs to readers but I think the stories themselves are very much the authors 
she wrote mm-hmm. them. She's still able to write more of them. I don't know. That's just my thoughts. Yeah, I think I'm inclined to agree with that. I mean, one of the differences between the idea of religious canon in Western religions and the canon we get in fandom is that Western religions typically ascribe their canon to a perfect god who isn't going to make mistakes, whereas everyone, well, for the most part, everyone in the Harry Potter fandom recognizes that J.K. Rowling is a imperfect human and she's going to make mistakes and bad calls and contradict herself, so that makes the I, uh, that makes the canon idea less similar between religion and fandom. Yeah, and I think what gets people fired up as far as like authorial intent versus, you know, the books belong to the readers is the idea that they can interpret something their own way, but when it's when they try to force those interpretations on back onto the author and onto other fans that it becomes a problem. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you can interpret something however you want because that's the way in which the story does belong to the reader. But when you try to say, like, everyone has to have the same interpretation as me, mm-hmm. or canon get messy. Does the story belong less to the author, like, as time goes on, especially when the author dies? Because I'm thinking of Arthur Conan Doyle and how loads of people are happy to canonize stuff that Arthur Conan Doyle was not happy with. So why, like, are we more okay with that than we are with people telling J.K. Rowling how it should be because J.K. Rowling is alive and Arthur Conan Doyle is not? Or is it just that we are less emotionally attached to the fandom? I think it's both. I I think it's definitely has a lot to do with just the fact that Sherlock Holmes is older and the Mm. author is no longer around to argue with people. So they feel more of a right to canonize things however they want. Mm -hmm. I think the amount of time it's been since he's been around, since he was writing, definitely creates this buffer of emotion where we're not so super connected to the feeling of canon of, you know, this is what he would want. Although I'm sure there are people like that still around even like the five or six years without Harry Potter, like we had Potter more writings every once in a while, but even those kind of died out, you know, mm-hmm. petered out in interest level anyway. I just felt like less connected to it. And that was just five years. So like, I don't know. I feel like with time, maybe it goes more to the readers. I don't know. What are your thoughts? So I I definitely like the idea of stories belonging to their readers in oh my goodness, everything I'm talking about here is going back to my idea of interpreting religious text, but you've got the idea of exegesis and eisegesis in religious texts and interpretation, and there's the one where you're focused a lot on authorial intent and uh, what basically the author of this scripture meant when they said blah blah blah, and the other one is more what does this mean to me, and I mean I feel like we can take an I have no idea how to say these words, exegetical, and I pretend I can say those words. Um, (laughs) I mean, you know those words. (laughs) (laughs) You can basically take that approach with Harry Potter, and I know there is a podcast out there that is reading Harry Potter as a religious text. It's so good, guys. Plug for them, Harry Potter and the (laughs) Sacred Text. And then there's also the what does this mean to me and how do like I personally feel about the story and that has a lot of value too. So I feel like canon is more useful for the authorial intent version of your focus but 
a lot of fandom is interested in the how does this work for me what does this mean to me approach and they're both great but i feel like in the fandom there's sort of a failure to distinguish between the two that maybe we could benefit from although yeah that's true but in a way that's also a good sign because I feel like it's a pretty good mark of like a good meaningful story that mm-hmm. it can continue to have meaning to people over time. And that as like history progresses, people can relate to the story in ways that are relevant to whatever's happening in the world, mm-hmm. even though that wasn't going on when the story was written. So mm-hmm. yeah, the fandom does interpret that a little more on the other side, but it's a good sign at the same time. Absolutely, because it lives up to both readings, whereas others don't. So I was going to ask, do, do you think that canon creation or canonization is more of an art or a science or both? How arbitrary is it if you get essentially two Harry Potter scholars to sit down and create their own distinguishment or tiers of canon? Are you going to get similar things without them collaborating or no? I mean, we all kind of wrote separate things on here, but they kind of boiled down to the same things. So I hope that's an indication that people would kind of at least reach because the different types of canon interpretations that I wrote on here, I never looked at the lexicon or the wikia. I just wrote down what I had heard from other people and like different versions that I could see coming up and Mm -hmm. into either the lexicon, like, primary, secondary, tertiary, or the wikia tiers. So I think, there. I mean, there definitely would be versions that wouldn't fit perfectly, but I think it would all kind of coalesce into something similar at some point. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point, because although they each have differences, they are so similar. It's almost, you know, redundant to have said both of them. But mm-hmm. my question is, what does it mean to have secondary canon? Like, what does that even mean? Like, I feel like it's just best making yeah. it sound better. That's where you get into, like, <laughs> philosophical debates about can something be, like, less true than something else? <laughs> and, like, we did talk about how this is, you know, not the same as true or not true, but right. it's kind of along the same lines, you know? Is something still canon but less canon than something else? I mean, I think I think of it as, like, the first level of canon would be you absolutely cannot contradict this if you want to do a question. good job in something. But the secondary level is more like, oh, this could be contradicted if, like, there was a good argument for it. And third level would be more just like, this is what we're working with until something better shows up. That's a good I like that. It's so hard when you're talking about a work of fiction because, I mean, <laughs> what we're really arguing about here is, did this happen or not? Right. In but <laughs> none of it actually happened. On one level, happens, no. So. But on other levels, like, yeah. So. Because, like, you have the Harry Potter books, which everyone is like, oh, that's irrefutable. But then again, it's from the point of view of Harry Potter, who is, like, unreliable as it gets, right? Mm-hmm. Especially in terms of Slytherins and, you know, the way he views his opposition, if you will. <laughs> I feel like everyone agrees with that, right? It's like there is a point of oh, view yeah. here. Yeah, I mean, anytime someone's going to argue about canon, they're going to refer back to their books as a sort of beat-all argument. Right. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like... Yeah, you do have that unreliable narrator. Right. That is genuinely how Harry Potter sees the world, right? And the difference that we get into with Cursed Child and something that we were mentioning in our Twitter conversation, where I read through that again, Mm -hmm. is that plays imply an omniscience that novels don't, right? Mm -hmm. So we can't chalk up inconsistencies in the plays with point of view because 
you are an audience member seeing everything play out, not inside someone's head, but as it actually is. Mm-hmm. We also got into a, a tangent about um, time travel magic, about how that's a huge tangent though, but it was really <laughs> cool. <'cause>, like, <laughs> you got super into it. I was just like, Mariah's a genius. Cause she's oh, talking about like how magic can be personalized, you know, subconsciously based on like your abilities and like, what if time travel is the same way? So like Scorpius goes back in time and sees Snape as the way he imagined Snape to be. How much because did that influence that timeline? Anyway, very interesting. The timeline would be created entirely. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we can talk about that later if you guys want. But no. Um, oh yeah, but the other thing we were talking about in that uh, conversation was how do we rec- like deal with cursed child things like the Cedric stuff that we don't like because previously when you were in books or whatever most of the time if there was something you really were not okay with you could chalk that up to be like oh well that's just our imperfect narrator being unreliable like it's not really like that but cursed child makes it so much harder to do that yeah Awesome. Yeah, my takeaway from this conversation has been that it is not easy to be a fan, and it's not easy to be <laughs> part of anything that subscribes to an idea of canon. It's a heavy burden we carry. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys had to say, like, one statement that defined what canon is to you in the Harry Potter universe, what would that statement be? I don't have a prepared one. <laughs> oh, this is on your toes, Mallory. <laughs> well, you guys go first, then. Okay. Yeah, so my interpretation of what canon is in Harry Potter is that it's J.K. Rowling's creation. So I kind of already mentioned it, but for me, it's her canon. Um, anything that she's written or that she's declared as canon uh, happens in that story and is something that deserves to be examined, uh, whether it is for good or for bad. And I feel like as fans, we can choose to like it and not like it, but we can't choose to say that didn't actually happen in the story but I'm sure there are very many valid opinions that contradict that. Yeah, I guess I'll go ahead. I mean, my opinion kind of branches off of that. I think my takeaway is I don't really have a hard line between what is canon and what isn't, but my sort of, I guess, advice to someone (laughs) when considering canon is to think about whether you're really discussing whether it's canon or whether you're discussing, I I can't remember that fancy word Mariah used for it, but... Yeah, there's exegesis and eisegesis, and I don't remember which one is Consider whether what you're talking about is exegesis or eisegesis. Are you trying to decide whether this is canon, or are you trying to decide what it means to you and how you interpret it? Because there are problematic things in canon, but I don't know if that erases them from being canon. I googled it. Exegesis is the one where you're looking for authorial intent, and the eisegesis is what it means to me. I guess that's that when you're discussing canon, you have to consider the purpose for which you're labeling something canon and why you have this concept of canon in the first place, because I think it'll differ for various interactions that you'll have with Harry Potter or other texts. That's my thought. We can interact with them how we want, but to appreciate Harry Potter as the work created by J.K. Rowling, you do have to accept what she has created. And to appreciate Harry Potter as something you enjoy thinking about can be translated to involve whatever you want, headcanons and whatnot. But since 
we're bound by language, you do have to use the correct language to express what you're thinking to those you're thinking to. Thinking to, that's the thing we do. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I guess language means lots of things and be thoughtful in how you're using the word canon. I feel like we kind of reached similar conclusions there, so yeah, yeah. I guess that, I don't know, stamps our discussion of success, <laughs> maybe? Maybe Canada we reached some kind of unity. <laughs> that was the goal, right? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go into the remember all. All of the things that have been coming out. I haven't read a whole lot lately, but I do got one. I do got You do got you it. Do I got do have one. one for you. Beginning Chamber of Secrets. Harry's in his room and Dobby shows up and he's trying to get him to not go to Hogwarts because terrible things are going to happen, right? And he's trying to, like, hint at what's going on. So Harry asks, do with Voldemort, does it? And Dobby goes, not not he who must not be named, sir. And Harry, bless his little heart, <laughs> he goes, he hasn't got a brother, has he? <laughs> that was something that never struck me that funny before, but I just laughed so hard. <laughs> I gotta say, if I were in Harry's place and had already run into this dude twice with the kind of vague knowledge that it was probably going to happen again, I'd do some research. <laughs> let's go to the Pensieve, what listeners have said since last episode. I think someone tweeted us. <laughs> I mean, I got plenty of feedback, but it was people giving me information and opinions for this episode, and we've already talked about it all. So, mm. so yep, that's all for today. If you guys would like to talk to us, we do want to mention you guys on our podcast. So find us on Twitter. We're at Newcasts with an S, or leave a comment on Facebook slash Newcast, or leave a comment at Newcast.com. We'd love to hear from you guys, and we look forward to discussing all the things you have to talk about with you. Thank you so much to Mariah for coming on today. Thank you for having me. I know you're a star. You enriched our conversation. I felt like I've learned so much just from talking today. Thank you. Um, This is lots of fun. (laughs) I'm glad. Next time on Newtcast, Ilvermorny. We're going to get into the story behind it as far as the origins, as well as talk about the houses. I'm really excited about that episode. I've been wanting to talk about Ilvermorny for so long. 